Good evening. It's great to see you all. A very warm welcome to Christ Church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church, and I'll be leading, um, I'll be hosting our time together. Tonight, we have the privilege of, uh, of having Andrew Satch join us, and he's going to be speaking on the topic, are you 100% sure you want to be an agnostic? Are you 100% sure you want to be an agnostic? For those of you who don't know Andrew, uh, Andrew works as a minister at Grace Church Greenwich, and he also teaches at Cornhill, uh, which is a school that trains people to teach the Bible. Before going into church ministry, um, Andrew completed a PhD in neuroscience, and it was actually during his time at university, it was during uh, his studies that he became a Christian. Andrew didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I think he has probably personally wrestled uh, with many of the questions that uh, agnostics and atheists ask. Now, what is the format for tonight? Now, we're going to begin by listening to a talk uh, from Andrew. After that, we'll have a, a short five-minute break, and after that, we'll have a time for Q&A. And we aim to be finished no later than a quarter past nine. Now, you're welcome to send in your questions at any time um, this evening. So if you have questions, you don't need to wait for uh, the break or for the, um, for the Q&A uh, slot to, to arrive. You can, send them, you can start sending, sending them in now. All you need to do is um, visit that website, ahaslides.com slash askandrew. Ahaslides, A-H-A, slides.com. Uh, forward slash ask Andrew, or you can obviously look at the uh, QR, take a picture of the QR link. Right, that's enough from me. Uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Andrew Satch. Thanks, Daniel. It's nice to be back in Christchurch Banstead, and um, thanks for inviting me this evening. Um, I'm not Bob Dylan or. Um, Leonard Cohen, although I do love their songs and their poetry, I like to imagine if I were writing a ballad about agnosticism, uh, this is how it would go. And if someone's a guitarist and wants to set it to a, a rock soundtrack, then please do. Better not to be dogmatic. No one likes a crazed fanatic. Here's a boy who's got his wits on the fence. That's where he sits, saying no one's right or wrong. Maybe, baby, maybe, baby. That's the chorus of the cool agnostic song. Buddha, Allah, I don't care. Who's to say what God is there? I love Man Yu, she loves Spurs. I've got my truth, she's got hers. We don't need to disagree. Maybe, baby, maybe, baby. That's what I say to your Christianity. Well, it's not a great song, just two verses, but please, someone set it to a guitar backing. Um, but that is, I think, it's something of the sentiment of the age, isn't it? That maybe is just the best place to be. You know, I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong. I'm not going to be dogmatic. We don't want people who are too sure about religion. They just become fanatical and dangerous. Surely much safer to be somewhere in the middle. It, just, it sounds very reasonable to say, I don't know, maybe. I'm not going to take a stand one way or the other to sit on the fence. The word agnostic, it just means I don't know. 
Um, so the Greek word agnosis uh, means knowledge, and you put an A in front of it, and it negates it. So you say something is asymmetrical if it's not symmetrical. Um, you could you say something's atypical if it's not typical. If you could describe um, someone who doesn't eat meat as being an a-carnivore, someone who hates bagpipes, you could say was a-Scottish. Um, if agnosticism is about knowledge, then agnosticism is about ignorance. It just means I'm ignorant. But um, there's actually different ways in which you can be agnostic when it comes to God. So on the one hand, you could be agnostic about something when you think it's knowable, it's just you haven't personally looked into it. So for example, I'm agnostic about the neurological basis of ventriloquism, whether um, what you see with your eyes can influence where you think a sound comes from. Um, exactly how that works in the brain. I actually read a fascinating paper about it, published in 1994, um, during my PhD, but I haven't kept up with the research. I don't know what they found out since. I, I don't know whether that's right or not. Now, I, I could find out. I could do some more experiments of my own, or I could read up on the literature, but I just haven't bothered to do the research, and so I'm agnostic about it. Um, similarly, I could say I'm agnostic about how many helium balloons it would take to send Daniel into space. I mean, it, it would be a fairly simple experiment, wouldn't it? You attach one balloon, and he's heavier than that, two, three, four, whatever it is, 74, and then off he goes. But I, I don't know how many because I, I haven't checked. So there's things like that in life that you could find out if you wanted, but you just never looked into it. And some people are agnostic about Christianity for that reason. It's not that it would be impossible to know, but you don't know because you've never looked into it seriously. And in that case, I would encourage you to look into it. I mean, I've got to persuade you it's important enough to do that, but it, it wouldn't, in principle, be that difficult to find out. So, um, as Daniel mentioned, I didn't, didn't grow up in a Christian home. It was actually only at university that I began to engage with the claims of Jesus Christ. And I just did some research, um, kind of reluctantly and eventually, but I just started reading some of the first-century biographies of Jesus that we have in, well, now, now they're in the Bible, but originally they were separately um, circulating documents. And I started reading them and think, what do I think about who Jesus actually was? I did some research and I got convinced. So that, that's, that's the easy kind. The, I don't know because I've never checked. Well, why don't you check? But there's another kind of agnostic who at this point is shaking her head. For her, it's not just so much I don't know as we can't know. Now, it wouldn't be possible to be sure about questions like, is there a God, or where did we come from? It's just, in principle, it's not possible to find out with certainty about these things. There's actually an irony, though. I'm going to call that sort of type 2 agnosticism. There's an irony about that, because the type 2 agnostic is actually not very agnostic about their own philosophy. They're, they're kind of saying, quite dogmatically, I know that you can't know whether there's a God. And I want to say, well, what makes you so sure that you can't be sure? Yeah, that, that, it's actually a very self-confident position. To, to say, I know that there's not enough evidence for God, it's like saying, I know that there's no treasure hidden in Leicestershire. I mean, how could you know that? You'd have to have first dug everywhere. What if there was a gold ingot in a cabbage field that you hadn't checked, or a diamond necklace inside the detergent bottle at a postcode that the police haven't yet raided. 
I mean, to be sure that something doesn't exist means that you've looked everywhere. You've done all research and you haven't. And none of us have bottomed out every historical question, every philosophical avenue. I mean, let's face it, the University of Leicestershire Archaeological Services, who do a lot more digging than most of us, didn't even know until recently that the bones of King Richard III were buried under their local car park. So, um, you know, what if there's just evidence that you've not looked at? You can't be sure that you can't be sure. So type 1 agnostic, I don't know because I've never checked. Type 2 agnostic, I can't know. Don't be absurd. But there's another kind, and I think actually this is the most common kind. It's not just I don't know, it's I don't want to know. I don't really want to know, so please would you leave me alone, Christian. Now, if that's you tonight, then well done for coming. And maybe you did this as a, as a strategy to sort of um, give your Christian friend a concession so that they'll leave you alone for the next six months. But, you know, welcome. Well done for making it. But I think a lot of people, they're agnostic because Christianity just doesn't really appeal. I don't want to find out because, you know, if it turned out to be true... It could just be so inconvenient. I think this, this idea of trying to keep on the fence, keep Christianity at bay, it arises because of a suspicion that Christianity would wreck your life. And, you know, there's a lot of bad press about it, isn't there? You know, if Christianity had a colour, it would be grey. If you could sum up the Christian ethic in a word, it would be don't. Um, if you could summarise the Christian contribution to fashion, socks and sandals. Uh, the Christian contribution to drinks at parties, schlur. <laughs> One of my friends calls Christian champagne. Um, you know, the, the idea is that Jesus, if he were here, would just suck all of the joy out of life. And if you think that about Jesus, it's no wonder that you don't really want to know about him. And so I don't know. It's just an excuse to say, look, just leave, leave me alone. It's like putting on the philosophical handbrake. I just don't really want to budge. My life's going fine. I don't want to ask any big questions. I don't need to. Just leave me alone. Um, I, I think actually, though, that Jesus has been missold, if you think that. And the first thing I want to do today is to try and persuade you that Jesus is good, good enough to want to know. Because <laughs> if, you know, if you think he's bad you're going to stop there. And it's just going to, any excuse I can to keep it at, at arm's length. I've got to persuade you he's good enough that you'd want to know. And I just want to share Jesus' first recorded miracle at a village called Cana in the north of Israel in Galilee. And we're told that Jesus went to a wedding. The bridegroom, he was meant to be organising the reception, made a bit of a mess of it. They ran out of drink halfway through. Um, Jesus' mother realises there's about to be a social emergency and nudges Jesus and says, go and help them. And Jesus um, turns gallons of water into wine. You've, I mean, everyone's heard of this miracle, Jesus turning water into wine. A friend of mine said this really surprised him that Jesus had done this. It wasn't the chemistry that surprised him, although admittedly this is quite unusual as a chemical reaction. You know, H2O to C2H5OH plus the vanillins and anthocyanins and tannins. And, you know, you can't ordinarily do that. But, you know, if Jesus is God who made the universe and he's responsible for the coherence of chemistry and physics, and then why shouldn't he, if he wanted to, just adjust the rules? It wasn't so much the, the chemistry that surprised him. 
It was the fact that Jesus wasn't instead going around the world, turning all of the wine into water. Because that's what he kind of expected from God, you know, as if God is somehow anti-parties, anti-fun, anti-drink, anti-gay, anti-women, anti-joy, and anti-everything, basically. That was his view of Jesus. Jesus just hates people enjoying themselves. Of course, that's not really rational if you think about it for a moment. I mean, who was it who invented wine chemistry? You know, who decided that grapes would taste really, really good if you fermented them and then aged them in oak barrels? I mean, sure, French people kind of discovered this, but surely the, the creator of grapes and of oak trees and of olfactory bulbs, you know, the bit of your nose that makes wine taste nice and... Surely God had something to do with knowing that that might be enjoyable. And the Bible is not against wine or alcohol. It's a gift of God. It's described as a, um, as a good gift of a creator. He likes to make us happy. Now, the Bible is against drunkenness, but that's only because alcohol, if you use it badly, can really hurt people. And I know that because a very close friend of mine some years ago was an alcoholic and she died of a seizure uh, whilst withdrawing from alcohol suddenly, um, and she drowned. Um, alcohol used badly wrecks people's lives and tears families apart. And so the Bible's against excessive use of alcohol, but alcohol used moderately is very enjoyable. And so Jesus makes lots of really, really good wine at a party because he wants them to have a good time. And the same is true of sex, isn't it? People sometimes think, oh, maybe, you know, Jesus is very anti-sex. Mm, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Because it's not like we invented a way of using bits of our bodies that our creator never considered. I mean, it's kind of by design that we can have sex and that there's nerve endings in particular parts of our body which feel good and that that's the way that children appear. And, you know, it's, like, it's not like God didn't realise that this is how it would work. I mean, it's obviously built into the way he designed us. And the Bible celebrates and loves sex. Now, of course, sex used badly can really hurt people. And I've only got to say the names Harvey Weinstein and Jimmy Savile. And we instantly know that sex can be harmful and abusive. But used rightly, it can be very enjoyable. And again and again in the Bible, we find a God who is pro-joy, pro-sex, pro-alcohol, pro-parties, pro-fun, pro-friendship, pro-family. Because he invented those things. Now, I don't know if you believe this, but I'd encourage you to look at Jesus. If you think Jesus the killjoy, he really will surprise you on almost every page of the first century accounts. Jesus, the one who loves to, to fix a broken world. He loves to put a smile back on people's faces. He prefers laughter, but shares in tears. Uh, this is the kind of Jesus that you, you shouldn't be so wary of that you've got to keep him at arm's length, I would suggest. Um, the atheists haven't really done as much a favour, have they, on this? The, the few years ago, there was that campaign on the side of London buses, if you remember it. Um, there's probably no God, so relax and enjoy life. That was the assumption. You know, God is there to spoil your fun, but he's probably not there, so enjoy yourself. 
And what if it's the opposite is true? What if there is a God, so enjoy life? Like, the, the God he made you actually has built joy and meaning into the world. Well, um, that's step one, maybe, that you've got to be persuaded that Jesus is offering something that's good before you even want to know. But then the question comes, okay, well, you know, sounds like it's a good offer, but is it actually true? That's the second question. Is it good? Maybe. But is it true and good, or is it just a fantasy? You know, make-believe and good. Well, um, at this point, I want to read you a little paragraph from the New Testament. This is a letter written by John, who was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, the, the, the 12 apostles. He was a fisherman, brother of James, and he wrote a letter to some early Christians. And this is his first letter. He wrote a biography of Jesus called John's Gospel, but he also wrote this letter to some Christians in the first century. And I love it. I think it's an amazing letter. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs this evening. But I think the first paragraph is one of the most extraordinary things ever written. Um, And I'll explain why. This is a very unusual paragraph. Um, Some of you are Christians and you you recognise the words, but even you might have missed why it's so very, very unusual. So listen in. That which was from the beginning, says John, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, we testified to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to suck all of the joy out of your life. No, he doesn't say that. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. Okay, it just sounds like a religious paragraph, right? But this is what is so unusual about it. It combines two types of literature that in themselves are quite normal, but never go together. So on the one hand, it's a paragraph all about the biggest philosophical questions. Um, That which was from the beginning. It's about the origins of everything. The life, the eternal life. It's about the essence of what it is to be alive, to be human. It's about our future, about eternity. Now, these are religious things. These are philosophical things. You, You don't have to go to the Bible to find people writing about meaning and existence and who we are and where we came from and where we're going and what's important. You just go anywhere to find those people wrestling philosophically. Um, My favourite example is um, art galleries. I love going to modern art galleries because artists are always posing really fundamental questions. So, for example, my favourite gallery near me is the White Cube in Bermondsey. It's quite a long way from Banstead, but it's a good gallery. Um, I went there just before the pandemic. I saw an exhibition of 350 paintings by the celebrated German author Peter Dreyer. 350 paintings, each one the same size, 8 by 10 inches. Every painting of the same empty glass of water. And Peter Dreyer has painted this glass of water almost every day since the mid-80s. And like that is, I mean, it's kind of slightly mad, but it is impressive, right? So, you know, this isn't just a sketch. This is a, a very, almost like a photographically accurate painting. And he does it every day because the light is slightly different through the window every, each day. And he just captures it exactly. And glasses of water are quite difficult to paint because you've got all the reflections and the refractions and everything. So, you know, he's quite impressive as a draftsman. He's 
also quite impressive self-discipline, isn't it? Imagine his wife. What are you doing today, darling? Oh, you know, I thought I might just paint that glass of water again. Um, you know, that's a sort of meditative, philosophical commitment, at very least. Almost more interesting than the artist's work is the gallery's inscriptions. Peter Dreyer reveals that there can be great fullness even in an empty glass. Bet they were pleased with that line. Right? So this kind of philosophizing, hand-wavy, you know, what is it all about kind of... You get that in art galleries everywhere. You get that in philosophy departments in universities. You get it in literature. You get it in the mind-body-spirit section of Waterstones. This is, this is typical. Let's take another kind of literature. My stepbrother, Thomas, he lives in Hyams Park on the Victoria Line. He posted on Facebook went to the Stag and Lantern microbrewery, Decent Pint. Now, this is you know, pretty unexceptional. It's pretty normal. There are people put on Facebook, over a million people a day, what they've done during their day, you know, which pub they went to, which pint they had, who they met. It's just normal. Okay? So two kinds of normal literature, but they don't go together. So you, you would never say, you'll never guess who walked into the Stag and Lantern last night. The beginning of the universe did. Like, you see, that's the kind of category error, isn't it? To say a philosophical question walked into a pub. You know, questions don't walk into pubs. People walk into pubs, and questions exist in the sort of art galleries. Um, you never guess who I was talking to the other day. Life itself. <laughs> what do you mean, right? So this is a paragraph. It just it mashes together. Massive philosophical questions and something very ordinary, like who I met today. Uh, let me just read it to you again. That which was from the beginning, you know, the beginning of the universe, which we heard, we saw, we looked at, we touched. The life, the life appeared. Yeah, we've seen it. We proclaimed to you what we saw and heard. Now, of course, they're, they're talking about Jesus. John knows Jesus. John and his friends have met Jesus. They've seen him, they've touched him, they've heard him. But Jesus, for them, he answers the biggest philosophical questions in the world. Like the question of where did we come from? Well, we met him. The question is, what is life about? Well, we touched it. See, what, what would be to sort of philosophizing, searching in the dark, for John is meeting a person? Because John knows somebody that he reckons is, is God himself. He is life itself. He is the beginning itself. And yet he went on boat trips with him. He travelled up and down the length of Israel with him. He watched him be executed under Pontius Pilate on a Roman cross. He saw him alive again afterwards. Now, this even itself is extraordinary. If you're kind of looking into Christian things, I want you to ask this question. What would it take to convince you that your best mate was the beginning of the universe? You know, that you had met life itself. Now, you know, I don't want to be particularly self-deprecating, but I've been speaking for about 20 minutes. You are already convinced that I am not God, I think. Yeah, I mean, is anyone... <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, it's a consensus, right? 20 minutes is all it took you to work that out. Imagine if you spent three years with somebody and at the end of it you thought, that person definitely made the universe. I mean, what, 
What's going on? What would convince a fisherman and his brother and his friends that this was God, the life, the beginning that they've met? Well, I think some extraordinary, extraordinary things that they'd seen Jesus do. Going to a wedding, there's no wine. Jesus takes some water, he makes it into wine. Jesus meets a man whose son is very ill. He tells him he'll get better. He gets better at the exact moment that Jesus says so. And they meet someone who's been a quadriplegic for 38 years. Jesus tells him to get up. He starts walking around. They go to a village and they meet a man who's been blind from his birth. Jesus makes some mud out of spit, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go and wash in the pool and he can see. I mean, these, these things, these extraordinary things, they're the kind of things that if you start to see a lot of them in one go, you're going to go, hang on a minute, this, this is not normal, right? This guy in our boat, who is he? Like, could he be life itself? Could, could this be the, the beginning of the universe itself in a person that we met and know? And I love the, the healing of the blind man in particular because you know, some people think, well, maybe Jesus faked his miracles. You know, maybe he fixed it. And the great thing about the healing of the blind man is that there's some skeptics at the time, and they do a, a full investigation into it. And I think the great thing about it is this man is, is blind from his birth, and it happens in the village where he lives, so, um, or in the town where he lives. So, you know, it's, it would be like, I'm sure this does happen. You know, you slip someone a fiver, before a, a signs and wonders crusade and say, excuse me, mate, do you mind hobbling in and pretending you've got a bad limp? And then I will heal you and then you dance out, okay? And then they'll get excited, they'll give us loads of money and I'll split it with you after, okay? And there, there are fake healings, aren't there? I mean, there's, there's staged David Blaine type miracles where people just set it up beforehand. But how are you going to do it with this one? Excuse me, mate, do you mind pretending to be blind for like your entire life so that everybody in the city knows that and your parents believe it as well. Is that okay? And I'll come along in, you know, 30 years' time and I'll heal you and then we can split the profits. I mean, like, it's just absurd, isn't it? Because, like, of course this man is actually blind because everybody knows him. He's the blind man from the town. You know, his parents know, his friends know. Isn't that the guy that used to be blind, they say? It's absolutely objectively certifiable that he was blind, and it's certifiable that he can now see, and Jesus is the one who did it. And it's just it's all very concrete. And then the miracle, I think, to end all miracles, is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Do you know the story of Doubting Thomas, so-called? Um, I prefer to call him Agnostic Thomas for the purposes of this evening's talk. Jesus has been killed brutally. They've watched him be crucified. Um, death by crucifixion is a grotesque thing. Basically, they literally nailed Jesus to a crossbeam um, and then hauled him up. And the medics differ on exactly what the cause of death is, but suffocation, heart failure, yeah, it's a grim thing. Um, but then three days later, people start to say they've seen Jesus alive again. They've met Jesus after he died. And Thomas goes, look, you know, I can't believe this. I can't believe that he's alive again unless I personally, and this is what Thomas asked for, for evidence. He says, unless I personally put my hand in the marks where they put the nails, 
and put my hand into the side where they speared him to check he was dead. Now, if you think about it for a moment, this is very good evidence. Because for one thing, if you touch somebody, you can tell whether they're alive, um, or whether they're a corpse, or whether they're a ghost. I mean, you know, physically touching someone, it's pretty, you know, have they got a pulse, are they moving? So it's a good test of whether someone's alive. But by asking to touch the execution scars, Thomas wants to verify that, that the person who is alive is the same as the person who was killed, right? So it's like a double check. I'm checking I've got the right guy. He was killed, but he's now alive. It's good evidence. And then it happens. Jesus appears to Thomas. Um, if you're into, oh, I've talked about modern art. If you like old art, then I really, really recommend you Googling Caravaggio. He's painting The Incredulity of St. Thomas, it's called. And I love it because it's not one of those fairy tale paintings where Jesus looks like a bit floaty and not quite real. And he sort of has a halo and floats around. It's not, not like that. It's a very much more visceral, historical, biological kind of painting. Here's this old man, um, Thomas, peering into a wound, which is quite gorily realistic. So watch out if your stomach is easily turned. And actually checking. Can you? Is it, oh, yeah, that's where the spear went in. It's a very vivid picture. Now, just think, if Thomas does that examination, how reasonable is it at that point for him to be agnostic? He's not agnostic. You see, he's now sure. Of course. I mean, like, just like you would be, or I, I would be, if, if I'd seen Jesus killed... And then I personally examined the wound in an alive, resurrected Jesus. Then there's no room for doubt left. And he's sure. I'm sure that's what John is referring to here. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and touched with our hands. I think he's thinking of that moment with Thomas. The life appeared. Trust me. Trust me, we know that this is the eternal life because we saw him after he was dead. We can be sure. But not just sure, but sure and happy. <laughs> he says, we write this to make our joy complete. You know, this is not only true, but it's good. And you can be sure too. So um, uh, two points so far. Christianity is good. Jesus is good. So you shouldn't want to be agnostic. Don't avoid the question by sitting on the fence. Secondly, the truth becomes a person, a historical, objective, eyewitnessed, touch-witnessed person. We don't need to be agnostic. You know, you can be sure about this. Very briefly, finally, um, the truth concerns treatment for a fatal condition. It's not safe to be agnostic. Uh, more briefly, so John goes on. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you. And then here's the Christian message in 11 words. Okay? Maybe you think preachers go on too much. Maybe you think I'm going on too much. This is the absolute conciseness. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There we are. That's the Christian message. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is saying something very important about God, that the God who exists, he's not 
a kind of yin-yang god. You know, in the Eastern religions, you have that symbol of the yin-yang, the, the black spiral into the white spiral in, with a dot of each color in the other one. And that symbol is men say everything is one. So good and evil, they're kind of one. The, the darkness blends into the lightness, blends into the darkness. Good and evil are one. Truth and lies, they're one. You are one. I'm, I am you, and you are this glass of water, and this glass of water is this postcard, and this postcard is the moon, and everything is one. That's Eastern religion. And John says, no, no, that isn't what we heard from him. Everything is not one. Rather, he is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. Um, God is only good. There's no evil in him. God is only true. There's no um, untruth or no lies in him. But of course, immediately that makes us realize there's a problem because we are not pure light. We're at best a mixture, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're sometimes good and sometimes evil. We're sometimes true and sometimes dishonest. And we're at least mixed and you bring something that's mixed uh, against a God who is only light, and it, it, he exposes us, he shows us up. It's one of the reasons people found Jesus so difficult to be around, because he was good, but he was too good. You know, stop showing us up, Jesus. When you see how compassionate Jesus was, you realise that we can be quite selfish. When you see how honest Jesus was, you realise we can be quite economical with the truth. Um, when you see how much light Jesus was, you, we realize, well, here's the problem. If we claim to be friends with him, but walk in the darkness, we're lying. Um, I used to live in a, a house with a bathroom that had no windows, so it was in the middle of the house, um, you know, by the stairs. And I would say it's just only artificial light, but I also had energy-saving light bulb, and it was one of those early ones, not, not the sort of LEDs that you get now, but... Do you remember the old energy-saving light bulbs, the sort of fluorescent ones, when when you turned it on, it was basically still dark? And then after about five minutes, it sort of gradually warmed up, and it was like that. Um, and it was about, I don't know, five lumens or something. I looked amazing in that bathroom. <laughs> you know, the, the dim glow? You could, um, I can never understand why people with expensive bathroom lighting would want 2,000 lumens to show up every blackhead and their coffee-yellowed teeth. You know, we all look quite good in the shade, don't we? But not that good under studio lighting. Um, so that's why we don't really like Jesus, because he shows everything up. And there's a problem. And then John says, we've got, we've got two choices. So you, you can either pretend there's not a problem, in which case you're lying. And a lot of people do that, don't they? I mean, our whole society is about telling ourselves that we're basically good when it's obvious that we're not. We're basically good, we say, as we lie and cheat and so I mean, if we're basically good, why do people get stabbed in London? Oh, just because of particularly bad people, unlike me, who's basically good. If I'm basically good, why do I hurt people and lie to them? And why do they hurt me? And why do even the people that we're close to get hurt by each other? You know, we, we just, you either lie and pretend, oh no, I'm, it's all fine, or, says John, we come to Jesus and his blood, his death on the cross, purifies us from all sin. This is the Christian message. God is light. There's no darkness in him. We're mixed. 
that's a problem. And the choice is pretend it's not a problem or come to him and he'll fix it. Now, it's actually the only solution, um, the only true solution is to come to him to fix it, to come to him and receive forgiveness, to come to him and have your sins washed away. Um, But, of course, you don't have to do that. You can just pretend. I want to give an analogy, and then I'm going to finish. So last, last comment from me. Imagine you go to the doctor, and you say, I've been having some headaches, and sometimes I'm losing my peripheral vision, and I want to know what's wrong. And they say, well, that sounds quite serious. Let's send you for a scan. And so you go for an MRI scan, and as you come out... Um, the radiologist has an inscrutable expression. And they say, I'm terribly sorry, sir, it's a pituitary gland tumour. Um, and that's why you're losing your peripheral vision. It's pressing against your optic nerve. And um, it's quite difficult to sort out, but actually we can go in through your nose, and thanks to some transphenoidal surgery, we can um, cut away the tumour. And you've got a pretty good chance of survival if we act now. Kind of bad news, though, isn't it? It doesn't sound very nice, having a robotic knife deployed up your nostril. And so on the way home, you, um, you're on the bus, and you sit next to somebody who's reading a, a book saying, uh, The Medical Conspiracy, How Big Pharma Conspires with Big Government to Ruin Your Health. And you go, I don't know if I can trust that doctor. And after all, doctors you know, get paid for doing these operations, and maybe they're just exaggerating. And so you say to your friend when you get home, How do I look? And your friend says, you look great. Oh, thanks so much. I was just feeling a bit rough recently, you say. And she said, oh, I recommend echinacea. Helps me. I go, oh, yeah, thanks. Now, you've got two diagnoses, right? You've got the diagnosis of the doctor. He says you need urgent neurosurgery. Or you've got the diagnosis of your neighbour. He says you're basically fine, but why don't you take echinacea? What, what do you do at this point? Well, you could either believe the doctor and go for the operation, or you could believe your neighbour and take echinacea, or you could be agnostic. I'm not sure whether I believe the doctor. I haven't decided. So what do you do if you're agnostic? Well, wait, sit on the fence, take neither decision, miss the medical appointment and the follow-up one, and don't have the surgery, and die. Because, you see, the, the agnostic is, is actually the same as the person who rejects the doctor. But by saying you don't know, you, you don't know and you don't act, and that's the same as if you decided it was wrong. It's just a sort of passive decision. But it ends up in the same place. And that's the thing about Jesus. If Jesus is right about this, if there is a God and he's light and there's no darkness in him at all, and if he's right that we are mixed and that's the problem, and well, we need the treatment that he offers us. We need the forgiveness and the purification of our hearts. It's like a medical diagnosis saying there's a problem. And you can trust the diagnosis and get the treatment. Or you could reject the diagnosis and say I'm an atheist. But if you're an agnostic, it's really the same as being an atheist because you don't take the medicine. You see, I don't know ends up being the same, medically speaking, as rejecting it completely. And it becomes the same, spiritually speaking, as rejecting it 
completely. So three points I've made just to summarize. To summarize. Jesus is really good. He's not anti, 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 anti. He's pro-sex, pro-parties, pro-joy, pro-love, pro-fellowship, friendship, meaning. We shouldn't want to be agnostic. Secondly, the truth is a person, uh, an eyewitness, touch-witnessed person. We can be sure you don't need to be agnostic. And the truth concerns an emergency with only one spiritual treatment. It's not safe to be agnostic. Are you 100% sure you want to be agnostic? Um, Daniel. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Folks, we're soon going to begin our Q&A time. uh, But before that, uh, we're going to have a a short break, a five-minute break. If you have any questions, um, now's a good time to, to send them in. Uh, and uh, if you're wondering where, where the loos are, there's some just by, uh, by the entrance. I'll see you in about five minutes. Uh, first question. So you mentioned uh, John's gospel. So this question uh, is related to, to John's gospel. Um, can we really trust the biographical accounts of Jesus, including uh, the one you mentioned? Can we really trust the biographical accounts? Yeah, I think so. Um, (laughs) The end. The end. Um, So sometimes people say you can't trust... Well, there's there's lots of things to say. I mean, this this could be a whole evening by itself on that question, but just a few things to say. Um, Firstly, we sometimes say, do you trust the Bible? I like that the question says about the biographical accounts, because, of course, the Bible is just a compilation of originally separate documents. So... um, it's just when it became possible to make books, so people invented books in the sort of third or first, fourth century, why don't we stitch pages down the middle? Um, it suddenly became possible to have a whole lot bigger document that you could have in a scroll. Um, and so people started doing anthologies. They thought, well, now we can have lots of things together. Why don't we collect together all the... Like we used to have a Shakespeare anthology at school, all in one book. The Bible is just a Jesus anthology. So it's just somebody's gone around collecting together all the separate documents that are useful to telling you about Jesus and putting them into one place. So it's a whole collection of documents. People sometimes say you shouldn't trust the Bible because it's written by Christians. They're biased. And I often reply, you shouldn't trust medical textbooks written by doctors because they're biased. You know, Because the doctors who write the medical tri- tri- textbooks, they believe them. Now, I'm just being silly, but of course, the fact you believe something doesn't by itself mean that you lied. The question is whether you were writing honestly about the thing that you believed. Now, um, I just don't think it's plausible that John, um, that which is in the beginning which we've seen and heard, which you've looked at, our hands have touched, about the word of life, that he didn't actually see and hear it. Because you then you've got to explain why this group of Christians in the first century is prepared to testify everywhere, be thrown in prison, in some cases be beaten up, in some cases be killed for something that they say that they saw that they didn't see. It's kind of hard to think why would they do that? It wasn't like sort of some sort of pact where they all become super rich or they don't all get to be bishops and live in cathedrals or you know they. The early Christians are marginalised despised, get a really, really hard time for being Christians, and don't recant even when they 
go to their deaths, and none of them do. Like, there's a whole group of them. They all hold to the same message, and a whole load of documents that all say the same thing. And you've got to explain where this comes from. Now, of course, people give their life for causes that are untrue. Like, I, d I don't think it's true that if you fly an aircraft into a New York skyscraper that it takes you to a paradise filled with virgins. I mean, that is a lie. But the people who flew the airplanes into the towers thought it was true. Like you, you have to believe in the lie to give your life for it. I mean, it's not plausible to me that someone would know that it was a lie and then die for it. So it, it, at the very minimum, it seems that John believes in his own cause. But if he believes in his own cause, he would know whether it was true because he was there. See, that, that's the difference between, you know, the, sort of the Islamic terrorist and, and John. The Islamic terrorist is believing in a um, radical interpretation of a book written um, more than a thousand years earlier. Whereas John is writing about someone that he knows and saw and spent time with and was there. So the idea that you would fictionalise a story that's going to cost you your own freedom and your own life. Why would you do that? So that, that's one problem. And there's more that we could say. I mean, the other thing is that you can't really get away with making this up because, um, again, a compare and contrast. So the, the claims of the Quran are that Muhammad met the angel Gabriel on several occasions in a cave alone. And I think, did he? How would I, how would I know that? How could I, how could I trust that you actually met an angel as opposed to you made it up. Whereas um, Jesus, the documents about Jesus aren't, aren't like that. They're not this document suddenly appeared to us or I suddenly had a revelation. They're, these are things that happened in named places on named occasions with named witnesses. And they're very public things. So I referred to the man who'd been born blind. He was in Jerusalem, it's the capital city. Um, we're told... Um, where, he w where it was that the healing took place. We're told who it was that investigated it. Now, of course, now that's a long time ago, but in, when these things were first claimed, the people who were there were around and consultable. So if you want to make a sort of vague fairy story, you have to say it happened long, long ago, far, far away. You don't say it happened in Bethesda, or it happened in Siloam, or it happened in Bethany, or, and it happened to Jairus' daughter, or it happened to Philip, or it happened to... You don't be that specific, because, of course, as soon as you're specific, people can check, especially if it's an event done in front of a load of people. So when the, first, the Christian message is first preached a month after Jesus' crucifixion, um, Peter stands up and says, Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by various miracles, wonders, and signs, as you know. So he's not saying, let me tell you about this person who did miracles. He says, you know this guy did miracles because you saw them, you heard them. So it's the, it's the sort of publicness to the events about Jesus that make it very difficult to fictionalise them. Um, yeah, those reasons and more, it's a whole, a whole talk. But yeah, I think, we, I think we can trust them. Or at least, I'm not even saying, I mean, as it happens, I do trust this completely um, as an account from God. But you don't have to believe that. Why don't you just believe it? curiously enough to go, this is a document written by someone who's prepared to suffer for what he says about his mate Jesus. Just, you know, that, that's the only something you need to make about it and just start to read. But don't make the excuse, I can't trust it, 
without looking at it. Because then that's just that I'm going to keep it at arm's length rather than engage. Why not have a look, see whether it convinces you, rather than leave it unexamined? Thanks, Andrew. Um, you, you also mentioned Islam there. Uh, so, yeah, you and I, we're Christians. Uh, we believe that Christianity is true. You know, we don't believe that Islam is true. Otherwise, we'd be Muslims. Um, but this is related to a question that so someone asked, what makes Christianity the right religion to follow? What makes Christianity the right religion to follow? Um, yeah, well, it's a good question. I think the one thing it's worth saying at the beginning is these religious claims cannot all be true. So the fudge that we, we kind of like in our culture is that's good, that's true for you. So I'm really, you know, I'm really pleased for you, Daniel, that you're a Christian, and I'm really pleased for my friend Muhammad that he's a Muslim, and I'm pleased for my friend Devon that he's a Hindu, and I'm friend for my friend Tom that he's an atheist. And great, great for you. And we, I think the reason we want to do that is because it sounds you know, respectful, but it's actually patronising. Because I've got, I have got Muslim and Hindu friends, as it happens, and we, we don't pretend that we agree. I mean, we respectfully disagree. But for me to say to him, oh, I see, yeah, you're basically, um, what you say is true and what I say is true. Because this is just a contradiction. So to, you know, to choose an I mean, obvious example, atheists say there isn't a God. Christians say there is a God who made the world. And they're not both true. Like, there either is or there isn't. Or even more clearly, in Islam, Jesus is mentioned as a prophet, and the Quran is explicit that Jesus did not die on a cross. And the they, Muslims think there was some sort of case of mistaken identity, and the wrong guy was killed. But um, uh, Muhammad is explicit, Jesus was not crucified. And the Bible is absolutely explicit that Jesus was crucified. And obviously both did not happen. Right? He wasn't crucified and not crucified. Because that's just nonsense. So, well, of course, we should respect people with different beliefs, but to say, oh, they're all correct, that, that, that's absurd. So at least one of them is, is wrong. <laughs> so I think what you then need to do is go, well, which one, which one is right? Is, a, is atheism true? By all means, look into that. Is Islam true? By all means, look into that. And so I'm not saying don't examine other religions, but check, because they're not compatible. Now, as I say, I think in the case of Jesus, it's much more verifiable. Because Buddhism is just a message. And if it wasn't written by the Buddha, that doesn't matter. You know, it could be a message from someone else. It's just an, an ideology. Um, Christianity is not an ideology. Christianity is about events. And if they didn't happen, it's a lie. So at least you've got somewhere his, historic and objective to start. So, you know, I, obviously I'm biased. I'd say start with Jesus. You don't have to. If you want to go to a mosque for six months, by all means do. At some point, reach Jesus in your investigation. And, but if he's true, then Islam isn't true. Um, it, it can't be both and. Thank you, Andrew. Um, you mentioned exploring, uh, exploring Christianity. Someone asks here, uh, how much do I have to know and be convinced of in order to become a Christian? How much do I have to know and be convinced of in order to become a Christian? Yeah, well, this is why I find it really helpful to remember this point that, that philosophy became a person. The truth became a person. So then it actually makes it not abstract. It's sort of objectively knowable. So how well do you have to know a person before you can trust them, is the question. Rather than how much do you have to know a, a philosophy before you can trust it. 
Now, of course, that takes time, doesn't it? So, you know, if you're in a, a very serious relationship with a person, you will have got to know them properly before you decided to trust them. And maybe it started with a first date and you said, oh, I quite like you. But it would have been the impression you had of a person over time that led you to think, you know, I trust you so much I can give my life to you. Till death us to part. Now, Jesus actually describes a relationship with him a bit like a marriage. And if you've got any sense, you think about who you're going to marry and you check whether their character is consistent. And, you know, you, so I think it's like that. So as, as you get to know Jesus, the question is not just as a concept do I think that you might be plausible, but it's as a person do I trust you. So it's about Jesus' character as well as what he says and does. And, and I think that takes time. So no one is asking you to sort of make a blind leap in the dark. I actually think you know, the leap of faith thing is not a biblical idea. I don't know where it comes from in um, the history of Western thought, but it's not really what the Bible means by faith at all. Faith is not taking a jump into darkness. The biblical word faith, it, the word pistis in Greek, it just, it just means trusting something, trusting someone. And if you've got any sense, you trust somebody that you know is trustworthy. And that's what the Bible's asking us to do. So... I'd say, you know, you start to get to know him and you think, do I trust him? But of course, there's another question that should be going on in parallel, which is, or do I trust the alternative to him? And the thing about the agnostic is they're just trying to suspend all judgment. I'll trust no one. But actually, you can't live trusting no one. We don't have the luxury of believing nothing. You know, you've got to make a decision about whether you're going to get up tomorrow and what you're going to live for and what doctors you're going to see and what medical treatment you're going to have. And there's not a neutral... So at some point you've got to say, do I trust Jesus? Yes, but or do I trust the atheist philosopher or the Hindi philosopher that I was trusting previously? So it's not a kind of, I think it's a sort of, I, me- I remember getting to the point that I thought, I don't know everything about Jesus and there's a lot of questions I've got, but I know I can trust him. And more importantly, I know I can trust him more than I can trust the alternative. Because the atheism that I had believed in hasn't got any answers at all. And it's based on very little and I have no reason to trust that. And I've got quite a lot of reasons to trust him, so I'm going to switch. So I think it's just, I'd, I'd ask you to sort of, what, what grounds do you have for your current beliefs and compare them with how trustworthy you think Jesus is? And over, over time, I think you'll find he's trustworthy. Um, someone, asked, someone asked the question, can you live your life not believing anything? Uh, connects no. somewhat to what you were saying. Can you, can you live your life not believing anything? Um, no, you can't, and neither do you. Uh, no, no one does that. So you believe it's worth getting up. You believe that someone didn't poison your Kellogg's cornflakes or whatever breakfast you have. Um, uh, you believe that the train you get on is going to the place it said it's going to. I mean, every, every day you trust people, otherwise it's impossible to function. Um, and also, you don't have the luxury when someone is telling you something important. So it's not just like you're in neutral, but imagine someone says, your house is on fire. You can say, oh, I don't, well, sorry, I, I don't believe anything. So I'm obviously not going to listen to that. You know, when, when a serious announcement is made, you've got to dis- you can't be in neutral. Um, you know, this plane is going to crash, get into the brace position. Oh, I don't believe in anything. Um, so I... Jesus saying, there's a problem, 
there's a diagnosis that's urgent, I've got the treatment. To say, I didn't believe anything, is not neutral. You're actually saying, I, I reject your treatment and your diagnosis. So you, you can't really succeed in a sort of suspended judgment permanently. Thank you. Moving on to um, a question on, on suffering. Someone asks, uh, why, if God is all good and it's good to know him, do, do people suffer at times, including Christians? Yeah, this is a very serious question, and um, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know most people here, apart from Daniel. But there'll be people in this room, perhaps, who are suffering, and it's a very urgent, personal question rather than just a philosophical one. Certainly, true of friends of mine. So, my closest friends, um, his father has got a brain tumor. Found out three weeks ago. Um, two weeks ago, he had surg- emergency surgery. Um, then they did a cell culture. It turns out to be the most aggressive kind of tumour. He won't survive more than six months. You know, so <laughs> the question of suffering is a, an actual and painful one for me and for perhaps you, and well, certainly for my friend and perhaps for you. Um, I don't want to give a glib answer to it, and again, this, this would take a whole evening really to talk about properly, but um, you know, maybe before I give a philo- philosophical answer, it's important to say that Jesus and Christians have always shown compassion to people who are suffering. One of the things you see about Jesus, he really cares when people's lives are broken. And he doesn't care in a sort of aloof, I float around with a halo way. He cares in that he cries too kind of way. Maybe that needs to be said. Um, it maybe it needs to be said that Christians throughout history have been some of those who've been at the forefront of alleviating suffering. So most hospitals, most old hospitals in Britain founded by Christians, um, AIDS hospices in more recent time founded by Christians. So at the time in the 80s when everyone was scared of HIV, it was Christians who were showing the compassion to people who had the effects of HIV. So I want to say that first, um, we should care and act rather than just give philosophy. Um, maybe we should talk about the fact that Jesus pointed to the hope of a world that would one day be set free from suffering. And the Bible ends with a beautiful picture of a world made new where there's no more crying or tears or pain anymore. For God has made everything new. We could talk about that. Um, philosophically, I want to say this. Um, you don't have the luxury of believing nothing about suffering. So actually, you've got to not just listen to Jesus, but listen to the alternatives and see which one makes the most sense. And I have to say, the, uh, the alternatives suck so atheism suffering is meaningless your life is meaningless you're here by accident your suffering is by accident don't ask why, it doesn't make sense to ask why just the way that the atoms of the universe have bumped into one another and in fact your pain is just the low concentration of a neurotransmitter in the randomly assembled collection of atoms which is your brain and that's not a good answer Right, it's just there's nothing to be said if you're an atheist to suffering. Suffering is just an arbitrary label that you've given to the state of some atoms. That's a poor answer. I think that the Hindu answer is worse. So in Hinduism, suffering is, is payback. So there's this idea that we live our lives over and over again in, in, in a cycle of reincarnation. And if you lived a good life, you come back better. And if you lived a bad life, you come back worse, and what goes around comes around. So what do you say if you're a consistent Hindu to a man born blind? 
Oh, well, you deserved it then. You must have done something wrong the last time round. That's why God put it in for you. Um, some of you are old enough to remember Glenn Hoddle, the England manager, saying um, about people in wheelchairs that they, it's because they'd done something wrong in their former life. And people were absolutely scandalised by it. You know, I think rightly. But it's what about a billion people in the world believe. The, the idea of karma, payback. It's a horrible answer. There's no compassion in, in Hinduism. Um, Buddhism, the whole of Buddhism came about with an attempt to wrestle with the issue of suffering. And the Buddha came up with the insight that the best way to deal with suffering is to detach yourself, isolate yourself. Because attachments to people is what causes you to hurt. So, for example, some years ago, my sister, who I love very much, was in a relationship that ended. She was very hurt by that. She was living in Hawaii, having this sort of fantastic paradise life. It all went wrong. She ran to the airport, um, booked a plane to San Francisco, the first flight out of Hawaii, arrived in San Francisco and phoned me in the middle of the night in tears. And I was very upset because I love my sister. And she was very upset because she loved her partner. And the Buddhist says, if only you weren't so attached, if only you could isolate yourself from your sister, then her pain wouldn't touch you. If only she'd isolated herself from her relationship, it wouldn't have hurt. I'm not ready to do that. Like to say, love becomes the worst thing you could do. And isolation is the best thing. No thanks. So the, these are really bad answers. The atheist, the Buddhist, the Hindu. What's Jesus' answer? And Jesus' answer is, this is a world that God made beautiful, but it's gone horribly wrong. Because God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. But if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in the darkness, we're lying. There's something wrong with the world. And it, it seems as even, <laughs> even as I begin Jesus' answer, it matches reality, right? This is what we see, that the world is not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a beautiful place, and it kind of is beautiful enough to make you really disappointed when it's not as beautiful as it could be. And humans are capable of love, but then sometimes they hate each other, and you think that, that's wrong. Um, and I think you know, Jesus' view of the world precisely corresponds with what we see about suffering. It's meant to be good, but it's somehow bad. And Jesus says that's because of the darkness that's in us. And the solution to that is the cleansing, the forgiveness that we need. So I, I have to say, I mean, it's not, this isn't a great QED, everything solved, you know, mathematical formula about suffering. It makes sense. Um, it's full of hope and reality. And the alternatives really suck. So I wouldn't want to switch Jesus' view of suffering for one of the others. Um, and I, I doubt you would want to if you look into them. I think they're very ugly, um, hopeless um, answers. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it's good to think of how Christianity answers that question of suffering compared to um, the alternatives. Mm. Andrew, you've spoken a bit about the difference. This is our final question now. Uh, you've spoken a bit about the difference that Christianity makes um, to, to you know, how you see the world, how you live. Someone asked here, uh, what was the biggest change uh, you saw in your own life um, or others saw in you uh, when you became a Christian? So what's the biggest change you saw in your own life um, or others saw in you? Yeah, I don't know if I, I, I want to say because it's a bit personal, but I suppose there were decisions I was making and was going to make about my life that were different to Jesus' decisions. And part of becoming a Christian was deciding 
do I trust him? And then if I trust him, am I going to say he's right and I'm wrong? So there's definitely decisions that I made differently because I wanted to do what Jesus said compared with what I'd have done if I didn't do what he said. Now, I don't want to talk about that too personally, but big differences, actually, in terms of certain areas of life. In terms of what people would have noticed, um, I don't know, it's hard for me to say. I think I'm quite different over 20 years of following Jesus than I was. Still a work in progress, like all Christians are. Um, I hope I care about myself less and about Jesus and others more. It's a bit corny, but somebody described joy, J-O-Y, as Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And they said an odgy and yodge are as unpleasant as they sound. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that's true. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. There was uh, the most popular question tonight, which uh, I didn't ask, was how many helium balloons to send Daniel into space? <laughs> 40 million approximately. Have you, have you seen me? 40 million. <laughs> Two probably send me can I, can I commission members of Christchurch Banstead to do the requisite experiment and, and let us know? <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Why don't we give yes. Andrew... Round of applause. Andrew, it's been really good having you um, this evening. Thank you so much for, for taking time out to, to be with us. And thank you, everyone, for coming along uh, tonight. Um, hope you've enjoyed your time with us. And if you're a guest, um, if you're not a regular churchgoer, uh, then we'd love to give you one of these. So it's the book that Andrew wrote. Um, the talk is based on that. So if you want to think a bit further about what we've been uh, talking about tonight, then we'd love to give you a copy of this um, for free. So if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, then just grab one of these um, on your way out. We'd love to give it to you as a gift. Before we close, I just want to highlight a, a couple of things happening in the life of the church in the next few weeks. So on Thursday, uh, the 1st of December, we have a journey through Narnia. So here at church, we're going to uh, make it look like Narnia. There's going to be a Narnia trail, and there's going to be some acting involved. I've heard that uh, Mr. Tumnus and Mrs. McCready and uh, Mr. Beaver are going to be here. And who knows, maybe even Aslan will come. I, really, I can't promise anything. I really hope that that will be the case, but maybe even Aslan will be here. Uh, also, on your chairs, you might have found, uh, or hopefully you would have found, uh, one of these. So we have a Christmas quiz on Saturday, the 3rd of December. Uh, that's at 7.30 p.m. It's going to be here. So if you love a good old-fashioned quiz, then why don't you come along to that? Uh, please do book your, your place, though. Uh, these are extremely... Uh, our quizzes are really popular, uh, so please do book uh, your place in uh, as soon as you can. I think bookings open on Thursday, so um, why don't you do that? Looking a bit further ahead, uh, in January, we're running some sessions called Exploring Jesus. So if you want to think a bit more about uh, Jesus and what he taught, uh, we're going to be looking at John's Gospel, um, which uh, Andrew referred to tonight. It's an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and we're going to dig into, into um, some of the, um, the stories in there. So if you'd like to find out a bit more about that, um, please speak to me or head on over to our website and um, register 
your interest there. Folks, that's all from me. Um, thanks again for, for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you.